He came to provide life, to give life, and to give it abundantly. We talked about that in class this morning. In this time period where we present a, a discussion, a, a lesson for you to consider and, and engage in, I hope you have your Bibles handy. Past couple of months, we have taken slices of Scripture, little tiny slices of Scripture, and fleshed them out a little bit. It's amazing the power of God's Word just in a slice of His Scripture and what we can glean from it and learn from it and gain from it and how we can grow from it. It's just astounding. For example, we looked a few weeks ago there at Psalm 90.17, just one verse, Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and give permanence to the work of our hands. Yes, give permanence to the work of our hands. And as we went through that, I fleshed it out a little bit. We looked at the context. The, but for most of these, we sat on those verses and looked at what we could glean from them. 88, 2, and 3, I am overwhelmed with trouble. We took a look at that psalm. Psalm 93, 5, holiness befits or adorns your house, O Lord, forevermore. And then there was the beautiful kiss in Psalm 85, 10, loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And then there was a twist last week. We moved from Psalms to Judges 11.24, where Jephthah is talking to the enemies of Israel, the Ammonites. And he says, will you not take what your God Shemosh gives you? Likewise, whatever the Lord our God has given us, we will possess. So our title of that one is, Possess What Your God Gives You. I don't know if, if you were here last week. If you, if you recall, we were basically considering and asking ourselves the question, what is our God? who is our God? Who are we serving? And we looked at uh, three or four different examples. So I'm going to throw another twist in here today. And instead of uh, reworking and retrofitting these psalms like this or these verses which uh, a fellow down in, Mount, in Monroe, Scott Byers, he calls them Bible Bites. So I was retrofitting some of those and adding quite a bit of thought to that. Today, I'm just going to read two of his. I'm usually an outline speaker. Gives me a little more eye contact. But today, I'm going to read two of them. The first one is in Judges 16, and it zeroes in on verses 16 and 17. I'm titling this little slice of scripture, or this Bible bite, Strong Man, Stronger Woman. And the context here is focusing on a judge, more appropriately, a deliverer, a leader named Samson. Last week, it was Jephthah, if you may recall, out of Judges 11. But we're 
Matter of fact, Jephthah and Samson, many scholars believe, lived at about the same time. And Samson would have been focusing over on the uh, west side of Israel towards the coast where the Philistines lived and bothered them. And Jephthah dealt more, well, well we read last week, he Jeph dealt with the Ammonites. And he was on, uh, he lived and came from the eastern side of the Jordan. So here we have the, the Philistines, no, Canaan, a king of Canaan, oppressing, oh, that's Barak. Samson is dealing with the Philistines. They oppress Israel off and on, and Samson is raised up to deliver Israel. Philist, he has slaughtered so many Philistines that their leaders and their rulers want to get rid of them. So in chapter 16, they come to Delilah and they dangle what in front of her nose? Lots of money. That's right. Silver, silver, silver. We'll give you 1,100 pieces of silver each from each of us. And it doesn't tell us how many men, how many leaders and elders of the Philistines there were, but they dangled that and so she went to work. And she worked on Samson trying to get him to tell her the secret of his strength. And he basically misled her three times, didn't he? Then she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have deceived me these three times and have not told me where your great strength is. It came about when she pressed him daily with her words and urged him that his soul was annoyed to death. That's the NIV. Uh, the New American phrases it with such nagging. No, this is the NIV. With such nagging, she prodded him day after day until he was sick to death of it. <clears throat> So he told her all that was in his heart and said to her, A razor has never come on my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If I am shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I will become weak and be like any other man. And she took that opportunity, lulled him to sleep one day. They bring in a fellow that cuts his hair. And this, this artist's uh, rendition of this, you can see the Philistine leaders are eager to jump on him because he, what did it say there? The spirit, the Lord left Samson, right? He gave away his secret. Now we'll get to uh, Scott's Bible bite here. The life of Samson is a case study of a man that had the outer strength of a hundred men, but was broken by the words of a wooing woman. The extremes highlight the point. There is more power in words than in armies, and in this case, a one-man army, which is what Samson was. Say what you will, but Delilah was stronger than Samson. Samson's masculine strength caused him to ignore his weaknesses. Men are not stronger than women, just different. 
Now, you may disagree with him on that because you might be thinking, well, yeah, they're different even in their strength. And physical strength, overall, generally speaking, that's true. Men in their physical strength are stronger. But his point is here with this story, the woman was stronger just with her words and her consistency and persistence with her words. And even without words, a woman is strong. Here in 1 Peter 3, 1 and following, a godly woman can win her husband's heart without a word. And if you read the context there, it's her example and her life can win her husband. He goes on to say, and a wicked, an ungodly, unrighteous woman unrighteous woman can deceive the strongest of men. And that's what happened here in Samson's case. The power of women to change the world is underrated. We need... Oh, uh, here's a contrast here. I'll pause because I'm going to interject a little bit in these Bible bites, as you can see. A godly woman can win her husband's hearts without a word. That's in contrast to what was going on with Samson and Delilah. And you might say, that's a silly-looking picture. He's got these funny-looking braids or locks of hair. He tells her in that context that uh, the third time before he tells the truth about his strength, he says, if you weave my seven locks of hair into a piece of cloth, I think is what he's saying, then I'll lose my strength. Well, that wasn't true. But this artist is rendering the seven locks of hair. I've never pictured Samson that way, but that could be what he looked like. We know that since he had that Nazarite valley taken that, he was not supposed to cut his hair. His hair would have been long as he grew grew older. So there's an interesting rendition. We We have all sorts of, see, there's a Caucasian Delilah and Samson right there. They don't look very Semitic to me. There's Semites there. It's just interesting over the years, various artists' rendition of what what they look like. That looks like a Renaissance painting right there. Anyway, we need more godly women with selfless hearts. Women that can change the world through service, change the world through steadfastness and unashamed love of hearth, and home. Women like Abigail, and that's who's illustrated here. You say, who in the world was Abigail? She is the one that put herself between two conflicting parties, two parties that uh, if they were allowed to engage with each other, there would have been a lot of bloodshed. She comes to David with grace, with calmness, with peacefulness, with gifts, with wisdom, and she words peace, actually, and convinces David not to do the thing that he was planning to do, and that was take vengeance upon her husband, Nabal, a worthless man. And he, the Bible describes him as a worthless man. How does the Bible describe Abigail? Anybody know? Intelligent. And beautiful is how it described her. 
And that probably means beautiful on the inside also. Women like Ruth. Ruth chose to serve the one true living God. She saw the example of faithfulness in her mother-in-law and chose that path. What an example of commitment, right? Then women like Esther, whose uncle said to her, how do you know, but you may have been put in this place for a purpose. And she utilized that and did what she needed to do and saved a lot of people. And then there's Mary, and you say, which Mary? Because we can read about several, can't we, in the New Testament? Mary Magdalene, who probably most likely lived an immoral life and turned to Christ, turned to Jesus and followed him. There was Mary, the sister of Martha, who couldn't get enough of Jesus' words, and she sat at his feet. And then, of course, Jesus' mother, Mary, who by faith listened to that angel as he said, you will conceive, not from man, but from God, and she believed, and then utters that beautiful praise to God, right? So pick any Mary you want there, or think about all three. And then there was Sarah, who believed with Abraham. And a host of other women who have been weaving, and they weave their families together, and generations that follow after them. The Delilahs of the world often get all the press because sinfulness makes for better headlines. But every day, godly women sacrifice their five minutes of fame, quote unquote, so those around them can shine brighter. Then he quotes from Proverbs 31, 30. Charm is deceitful and beauty is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Amen. It's interesting that in that list, Abigail, Ruth, Esther, Mary, Sarah, Abigail's described as beautiful. Esther was definitely beautiful. That's why the king had her in his harem. And Sarah is described as beautiful. Beautiful physically but they also were beautiful in character, and that's what we're focusing on. And if you take time, maybe some of you have read Proverbs 31 over and over, especially you women, but you men, young men, old men, older men, oldest men, read Proverbs 31 sometime soon. And notice that she... That woman is strong. She is strong in her realm. She is a leader in her realm and what and the things that she is doing and has been given by God to do in a family. So while we're on this subject of strength and leadership, let's read another Bible bite, as it's called, over in Judges 4, verses 8 through 9. And the context here is that Israel had been unfaithful to the Lord. And so God sent the king of Canaan against them to oppress them for 20 years. And he had a commander named Sisera 
who commanded not only an army, but 900 iron chariots. And that was pretty formidable, formidable to meet that kind of army back then. And Israel cried out to the Lord. So what happens? He provides Deborah and Barak. And Deborah calls Barak, who evidently is a leader of a, a bunch of Israelite soldiers, and says, you notice what she, she instructs him to go and face the army of Sisera. Then Barak said to her, Deborah, if you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours. Some translations put it, there'll be no, you'll get no credit, no glory if this is the journey you take. Meaning if, if I go with you and you're not the leader, being the leader, the glory and the honor is going to be given to someone else who takes down this army, especially Sisera, who would represent the army. And is that what happened? A woman named Jael actually is the one, J-A-E-L, she's the one that actually literally defeats Sisera and <clears throat> puts an end to his life by driving a tent peg through his temple. The problem was not that Deborah was too strong, it was that Barak was too weak. Men who want power without courage and sacrifice are paper tigers. Do you know what a paper tiger is? Just think of a magazine with a picture of a tiger on it, that's paper tiger. It looks ferocious and strong and vicious and energetic, but you can take that paper and tear it in half, right? A real tiger, that's another story. We do not need men, more men, that call themselves leaders, but won't lead. And, and I realize that's, I'm not reading from the Bible there, that's Scott's opinion here. Well, would you agree with that? We don't need more men that call themselves leader, leaders and they're not going to lead. God's picture of male leadership is selfless and honorable. And you know what this is a representation of? J Jesus. Jesus, the master, the Lord, the king, the king creator, getting down and washing his disciples' feet. What a powerful example that was of selflessness, and it's honorable. That's a picture of male leadership. It is willing to die for others, Lead through example. Pick up the cares of others. And deprive itself of comforts. God's men don't sit on the couch in their pajamas eating Cheetos and playing Call of Duty. They are called to duty. That's a good point, isn't it? That's a... That's some application right there. God's men are the first ones into the fire and the last ones off of the ship. 
And we usually think that in terms of physically. Oh yeah, if the, if the ship's going down or there's a fire, that's the men that go in there and get things done. Well, think of it spiritually too. God has given men and women different roles. And that doesn't mean that they are, that one is uh, not as valuable as the other. But here I want to urge, especially the young men, take action. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, and the prophets, who by faith, and then he lists a whole bunch of things there that they did. And there's the key, isn't it? Who by faith. So brethren, your attention just for a minute. Wakey, wakey. Were these fellows flawed? Yeah. Our highlight today was Samson. Flawed character. Flawed character. And yet, he is listed in this chapter. He is mentioned in this chapter, which has everything to do with faith. Putting our trust in Jehovah God. Our trust in Jesus Christ and serving Him. So again, this is not a matter of who's better and who's best, but it, it does touch upon the different roles God has given to men and women. You might say, well, how can I make this practical? We'll close with Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 2. You want to turn there? Titus 2, beginning in verse 2. Paul, writing to a younger man, Titus, and instructing him to do some things. You, Titus, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. There's a lot of things to work on there, isn't there? There's a lot of things to grow in. And he, he's urging Titus to teach the older men to do these things. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live. So if someone says you women can't be leaders, well, they're leaders in a certain realm right here. In the way they live and not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, they're also to be teachers. Teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign or speak evil of the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be Self-controlled. Uh, folks, you realize how many times he, he's, he's uh, encouraging Titus to teach older men self-control. Teach them to be self-control. Teach the older women to be self-control that they may teach the younger women self-control. 
and encourage the young men to be self-controlled. He gives the older men a, a whole list of things. The young men just one thing here in this verse, be self-controlled. What's that telling you, young men? The young men have greater challenges, and they're, they're faced with emotions that can get out of control, like anger, lusts. They need to learn how to control their time. Young men, and I want to focus on young men right now. Any of the under 40. There's kingdom activity in which to engage. There's kingdom activity in which to engage. And you're running out of time. You may be in your 20s. And you may have 30, 40, 50 years to live. You're you're running out of time. And you may look at me and say, well, Givens, you're in your 50s and all you older guys, what are you doing? We're really running out of time. (laughs) You young guys might say, yeah, but uh, I've chosen to take a wife and have a family and I'm Busy loving and raising and caring for my family, isn't that part of serving God? And I say, amen, it is. But I, I think we have this idea of, uh, of raising families and having building careers and then church family activities over here, everything's separate. It, it's, it's all integrated. So integrate loving and raising and caring for your family with serving God and serving the church family. You say, well, I need some specific ideas. Well, read Romans 12, read Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, and there's some passages in Peter. There's ways in which you can serve. So you may be sitting here this morning wondering how in the world you can apply this, these stories, these Bible bites of Samson and Barak. Well, we'll just say... What Mr. Scott here was encouraging. If you find yourself with the skills to be a leader, then be a leader, men. And women, charm is deceitful and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. That's how we can end this. So think, think about Samson and Barak. Uh, and, and notice in Titus there, the three times he mentions self-control... We can compare that with Samson. He wasn't very self-controlled. So self-control and all these other things mentioned in Titus, there's plenty of things for us to to do and to grow in, right? So let's think about these things as we 